Welcome to the 13th episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the underground bunker. If you've been a Scientology watcher as long as some of our stalwarts at the bunker, you'll remember a time when our guest today was as electric a campaigner against Scientology's abuses as anyone who had come out of the organization's upper ranks. At one point, Jesse Prince was just a couple of rungs below founder L. Ron Hubbard himself, and he was even David Miscavige's auditor. But then, around the turn of the century, Jesse became one of Scientology's biggest headaches and a major target for its retaliation campaigns. We've kept in touch with him since he put out a memoir a few years ago, and we were thrilled when he agreed to come on the podcast. We knew we'd be in for a bumpy ride. Jesse Prince, what a what a treat this is. I always enjoy speaking with you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I, you know, I'm I'm doing pretty good and and just learning how to live. That's all. Well, you you always had to overcome quite a few challenges, haven't you? Well, I have, you know, I have and um you know, I I succeed. I'm still here. So, <laughs> what do I say? <laughs> you're a fighter. You're a fighter. Yeah. Well, one yeah. thing I thought I'd, I'd bring up with you is uh, the fresh news this week, which is that, uh, you know, Scientology gets sued uh, again and again. And uh, lawsuits often name David Miscavige a defendant. But then what he does is he makes it so that process servers can't come anywhere near him. And uh, these people that are suing the church have a real hard time making him a defendant. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Valerie Haney and the, the Masterson accusers, they just could never get him served. But this new lawsuit, um, they also had a hard, this trafficking lawsuit uh, in, in Tampa. They also had a hard time finding him. But they went to the court and explained that here's all this evidence that Dave is evading service. And the court agreed and has issued a summons for him. And I just wow. thought I'd get your th- yeah, I thought I'd get your thoughts on that because you know maybe better than most people how he insulates himself and how he might be reacting to something like that. Well, a summons now, you know, of course this is a civil case though, right? It's a civil case, so the summons means that the state will be able to serve him. Uh, more on just a notification basis. They won't have to physically hand him any papers. So if, right. if, if, if the next couple of steps go right, the way I understand it, he will become an official defendant in this lawsuit. He's going to have to start sending an attorney down there and all the other thing. And I guess, you know, the thing that could be most interesting is once he's an official defendant, I would assume that these plaintiffs would try to get him deposed. And of course, that would be the most fun. Well, absolutely. You know, that that is what's what they're trying even more than deposing him. They would probably be more interested in avoiding having an exact place where he's going to be so that others can serve him as well. That's probably a, a, a concern that's right at the forefront. I know it always was uh, for Elrond when he was on the run. It was always such a struggle for process servers, whether they were uh, law enforcement or otherwise, to find a representative to accept service. You make a really good point there, Jesse, because I didn't think about that, that one of the consequences of this, if this Tampa lawsuit, if these plaintiffs can get David not only a defendant, but at some point down to the courthouse then that would make him vulnerable to other people trying to serve the guy. Well, you know, they won't even have to necessarily get him to the courthouse. All they have to do is discover and find an exact means for the court to accept a service on him, and whether that's by representative or whether that's by handing him the papers or whatever. I mean, there's there's law that clearly says so, those things, but... That's what kind of broke the dam for Elrond when when the plaintiffs actually found a way to get him or uh, some entity to accept the service on his behalf. And once that started, then the suits just piled up. 
I see. There's no no path to serve Miscavige by civil or, or criminal at, at this point. And, and that uh, he's being compelled right now uh, or has the potential of being propelled is certainly a step in the right direction. How do you think he's reacting to that? You knew the guy. You know, um, it, it's a double-edged sword when things like this happen that you've probably observed, Tony. Uh, um, in, in, one, in one sense, it unites uh, the Scientologists to threat, and, it, and it's a big, it turns into a big fundraiser. I mean, we, we know how that goes in today's society where we see that phenomenon. And that's the outward public appearance of it. But inside, there's a, a, a certainly a concern, a concern because eventually what happened, you know, just kind of drawn a similarity between Miscavige and Elrond, Miscavige being the current leader. Eventually, when that when that path was discovered and the suits started piling up, that was the beginning of the corporate sort out mission where, um, you know, all the money or the reserves were in a certain location or whatever. So the suits were attacking that or everything was including that. And part of the strategy was to break the corporation up and uh, limit liability to just the Church of Scientology, California. So, um, you know, as far as Miscavige's liability is concerned, if they... If he, you know, being the leader of the church, more than likely corporately, he's on these boards, whatever board of directors they have, whatever they filed, he's on those boards. And uh, just as a, as a fact of law, uh, you can sue those boards um, and they have to have a person to accept service. So that that is the path to service. And uh, it sounds like someone's discovering that or they've gone through. And, you know, it's not an easy process for sure, not even for law enforcement because of the runaround. But uh, it sounds like they've uh, gotten that crack in the door. And, and that normally, as I said in the past, it's, it kind of started a house of cards, resulted in big changes, resulted in Elrond going into hiding. That also resulted in... Um, um, the attorneys actually having to go to Elrond, do a video and and explain to the judge, you know, why he can't. And, and it was very elaborate. It was just, I mean, I'm sure you know the history of that, but it was certainly uh, part of the ending of Elrond for sure. So maybe there's some similar a panic, all hands on deck. I mean, this I have imagined that Miscavige is not happy about this judge deciding that he has been evading service. I, I assume he's going to come into court or have an attorney come into court and whine and cry about it. Oh, you're going to see Monique and you're going to see all the attorneys for whoever, whatever corporations that are listed on those suits, organizations, flag, whatever, you know, able, whatever. They're all going to be lawyered up with multiple attorneys. And the uh, whole purpose of that will be to just delay, delay, delay. Uh, and um, in the meantime, probably Ben or their other peacemakers will be coming around opening that bag because the last thing they want is to have a judgment. The last thing they want is to have a clear path to suing, you know, a set a precedent of how do you serve uh, Miscavige how, and, and, and uh, you know, once that path is established, it's a... Uh, it, it is the crack in the dam, I, I'd have to say. Well, it's an interesting time for sure. But let's uh, let's remind some of our newer folks who you are, because I, I'm not sure everybody knows. Um, I mean, at one time, you were like the second or third highest ranking Scientologist in the world. And you were really helping to run things as, you know, David Miscavige was still coming up, right? Sure. I mean, uh, in that phase of Scientology, as far as the, the leadership, I mean, it's not that way now, and it probably wasn't that way before. But during my time, it was not just, well, it was the one person, Elron. There was a clear and distinct leader that certainly had more, more talent and more draw 
power than the current leader, Miscavige, who, you know. Anyway, but it was a coalition of people. It was a coalition of people, uh, you know, somewhat intelligent people and, and the best lawyers. It was an actual team. So it was it was a lot of people. And Miscavige was at that, you know, he was just a player. He was just a part of it. He, he didn't have uh, Elrond's leadership. He didn't have Elrond's authority. There were other people that had similar authority to to Miscavige, and uh, they could assert it. So it was more balanced. It was more balanced. Right now, I don't think Miscavige has that balance. I think he's pretty much isolated it to himself. And the, and the danger that that uh, Miscavige is in right now is, is you know, if, if he's carried on just being a harsh and, and just a, a harsh prick to everyone, he's made a lot of enemies. And uh, enemies within, not outside, but actually around him and within. And they're waiting for his downfall. They're waiting for him to crack. They're waiting for a reason to to uh, betray him. You know, people people may not, uh, you know, be able to resist being bullied or whatever. But if they have a chance to get even, more than likely, more often than not, they do. So I, I think Miscavige is in a very dangerous position right now. That's interesting because I, I think you're right. I think he has isolated himself. I think he's gotten rid of anybody he thought might be a threat, you know, put him in the hole or whatever. Uh, he's the guy, he's gotten rid of anyone who, who really, who knows who he really is. Yeah. So, you know, and they're, they're, he's playing on this facade of like, you know, this intelligent, great leader, whatever, when uh, when in fact none of that is true, you know. He's... Well, you were his auditor at one point, weren't you? Sure. That's why I'm, I, I, I speak like this. You know, I understand his thinking. I understand the psychology of, of what happened there. I, I have an idea. I think I have a, a pretty educated idea of what's going on now. The, being the fact, and, and I'm speaking from a legal perspective specifically because that ended up being my job towards the end of my career in Scientology was to represent it in a, in a courtroom. I was the face of Scientology technology inside of a courtroom. The first and only person that ever did that in Scientology. That's who I am. Right, and that's reflected in the title of your book, The Expert. Is you you were certified as an expert witness on behalf of Scientology, which- And the court itself, and the court itself. Don't forget that part. I was recognized in many courts across the United States from Florida to California as an expert in Scientology. And I I witnessed, I witnessed in the McPherson case, I witnessed in the early case, um, I I witnessed in the Wallersheim case that was accepted by all of these judge judges. Uh, another case that Brian Haney was fighting uh, with Digital Light Wave, and I never lost any of those cases. And I was the only person, and to this day I am still the only person that was accepted by the court and Scientology as an expert on the subject of Scientology itself. And that drove them crazy later when you had left. And then people wanted to use you as an expert in their lawsuits. And of course, then Scientology had a hard time denying that you knew what you were talking about, right? They had no, they, they could not deny that. And then not only that, they never brought another person against me to counter my expertise, such as uh, another person in the technology, I should say, like uh, uh, the senior case supervisor of Scientology International or the senior criminal or any senior anybody or even the next leader, never presented themselves as a counter expert to me, ever. It was just lawyers. They sent their lawyers. They tried to use lawyers to counter my testimony, and it, it never worked. And they never had any representative from the church itself that could ever handle my testimony. So they instead used the dirty tricks, right? Use attorneys, you know, to argue with the court, like, oh, he don't know what he's talking about, or he's lying, or he's this, or he's that, and that was never a finding. So all of my testimony there across courts across America and in Europe, 
of what I've written to the court, like an amicus brief or whatever, about Scientology, and those records are accepted. They're in the court records to this day. And like I said, they they couldn't they couldn't counter that, so instead they just used the dirty tricks, right? Yeah, and it didn't work. So they settled the cases, and then we all and then everything stopped. I see. You know what? A question I had is, um, you so Hubbard died in '86. You left in '92. Uh, you were kind of away from everything for a while, just making a living. But then at some point you met Bob Minton. I'd like to hear that story. Well, that's also covered in my book. Um, shoot, man, I was just in recovery from Scientology. Um, you know, coming from that place uh, of that world, and when I think about where I was in relationship to today's standards, you know, I have to be honest with myself. I was living in a world where there was, um, you know, rapid uh, and lascivious sexual acts were not allowed. Hmm. Drug hmm. use was not allowed. Um, whoring and, 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 and all this kind of stuff was not allowed. In other words, it, it, we actually had that closed system. It was crazy, but we were certainly insulated from a lot of the the evil and nasty shit in the world, which we used to hear about, you know, all right, oh, you don't know how horrible the world is and we're trying to create this safe space, blah, 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 blah. So I was in the midst of not only, you know, being totally confused about where I had, I had been in the for the last 16 years, but trying to adapt to this world that I had been cautioned about so much and then you know kind of seeing on a certain level that shit what he said about this is right it's insane out here it's insane <laughs> so at that point that's when i met bob minton um prior to that scientology the leadership you know uh, miscavige and and mike Sutter and stuff they used to keep tabs on me to see how i was doing you know, I, one time they flew me out to New York to meet. This is when Earl Cooley was still alive. You know, I'm talking way history. But this is when Earl Cooley was alive, who, who was a wonderful, wonderful person, a wonderful lawyer. I learned so much from him. I learned so much. He's really the one that trained me to be an, an expert, how, how to conduct myself, how to write, how to think as far as, far as in the legal system to be an expert witness in that in that environment, and he and I got along just great. And uh, I remember one time he flew me out there. This is when after I'd been out of Scientology, maybe maybe two years, maybe three years, I had moved on to a, another career. I was I was working managing and booking bands. I had about twenty six bands. I worked at a an agency called Mid America Talent Agency. And, um, and you know, I had, had no concept of going back and attacking Scientology or doing anything with Scientology. I just wanted to, wanted to be free of it. I didn't ask for money. They gave me no money. I asked for no money. All I asked from them is to let me have my freedom. I just want to get on with the rest of my life. So that's what I was doing. And, um, you know, learning to live in, in, in the world after being outside of it. I mean, you know, you don't watch TV for 16 years. You don't really listen. You're not in that fashion or the trend of music, like what's trending now, what new genres, you know, all of the mechanisms of being in the world was not there for me for 16 years. So coming back into this, I mean, the first time I watched television, I felt like I was getting shock treatment. It, it, it made me so bad. I felt so horrible. I, I felt like, what have I done? I've come to this shithole. I've gone, I've gone from the frying pan to the fire. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, um, I, and plus racism, you know, white supremacy, all this shit still in the world. And um, 
you know, it, which was particularly hard on me. And uh, I just came right back to it. All of that nastiness, all of that evil uh, wickedness, I, it just came right there. It, it wasn't there for me in Scientology. So it's like it was a struggle for me. Like, what the fuck did I do? I, I made a horrible mistake here. You know, I, look where I'm at. I'm in hell. I've, I've traded purgatory for hell. So, wow. yeah, I was I was definitely struggling with that. But then, uh, you know, and I, I I got heavily into reading the Bible and reading scriptures, just trying to straighten my mind out. Um, reading other theologies, reading other other, you know, my my other interests that I actually got into Scientology for, you know. In, finding out potential of human potential. I started looking in those areas again. I just started to calm down from Scientology. I was just ready to move the fuck on. And um, here comes Stacey Brooks, wicked ass. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I was... Um, I was just, back then in those days, and it all seemed so quaint now, uh, we had internet cafes. You remember when, you know, yeah. it was like coffee and, and it was a social thing. People would get on and, and all of that shit. So I would go, I didn't personally own a computer, but I would go to the internet uh, cafe. It was very trendy and get on there and create username, log on, all of that. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know how it happened. I, I, stumbled on this Scientology. I just typed in Scientology and boof, all this shit came up. And it seemed so blasphemous to me what I had read, what people were saying about Scientology. It was like, you know, don't they realize how much trouble they're going to get into by saying that or, or how much, how disloyal they are. All of these kind of emotions and things just started coming up in me. So over, over time, I guess maybe over a two-week period after going to that internet cafe and reading what people were saying about Scientology, it helped me to unpack. It let me know that I still had a way to go, you know. And and then the shit that hit the fan was the Lisa McPherson. Right. A girl was dead, walking down the street naked, uh, you know, Woo, all of that kind of activity in Scientology was fresh in my mind at the time because I had previously done a handling on a person that had lost their mind, went psychotic, and I personally had to deal with that person and do whatever I could to help them get their mind back, which eventually happened over some weeks. But, um, you know, when I started hearing the news about Lisa McPherson and how she was walking down the street naked and all. I mean, I completely understood the scenario. I knew I had understanding. I had conceptual understanding about how that happened, what the girl went through, you know, especially when I started hearing all this ethics stuff and all of this and all of this. And, and I knew what was wrong with that girl. And then that, she died and how she died and how they covered it up because I knew it, I knew it so well being an expert in Scientology I understood conceptually everything that went down there and that was when I decided okay I gotta go and get these assholes <laughs> you know Bob and Stacey were doing it this person was dead, and I don't know, why should I care? Nobody in Scientology, even to this day, gives a shit about me, but <laughs> I care. It just touched my heart. It's like, like you know, it not, not she's fucking dead. She was just trying to be a better person. So I joined the team as uh, as an expert. You know, Bob talked to me, and it was it was just like, you know, I just put my, my head in my hands because he's part of this insane world that I'm into now. Here you have this crazy narcissistic person with all this goddamn money. And um, he's out of control, really. You know, he's he, me and Stacey are talking because we're on a different wavelength, but she's with him. And this is her new damn boyfriend. And, you know, she's telling me he's going to help us with Scientology. He really has an interest in it, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that's kind of how... I got into the fray 
of uh, back into anything to do with Scientology, you know, the short story. And um, I worked on that case until until the end, until the end of it. No one lost the case. It was settled. And so I kept my perfect record. I never lost a case as an expert <laughs> or out of Scientology. And um, and um, people got made money and, and, you know. And the thing that upset me, even though I personally got brutalized for doing that, the thing that I got of it got out of it was the same thing I went into it for. As a result, people aren't being killed like that anymore in Scientology. They're much more cautious about it. It slowed down and it just stopped. They just didn't want that trouble anymore. And so that happened. That's that's how that went down and that's that. Well they I mean they did target you for daring to help out with uh Bob and Stacy, right? Oh my God! You know, yeah, and that, that's very much detailed in my book. Just and, and Osa and Mike Render and every damn body else. You know, they they lost their damn minds and um, they didn't understand. You know, they didn't understand. And I just really had to be the bigger person and try to understand for them and move forward as best I could. And we did. And God knows I am not a perfect person under any stretch of the imagination, but. Um, I don't have any hate in my heart and I don't have any evil in my heart. So, you know, I think that gives me an advantage over some people. <laughs> well, one of the things I liked about one of the things I liked about your book and I contrasted it with, say, Marty's book was that, um, you know, you talked about some of the, the things you did for Scientology that, you know, were not nice things, you know? I mean, you had, they, they wanted you to do some of their dirty work for them. And I just thought it was really useful for you to tell those stories, whereas somebody like Marty was still trying to paint himself as some kind of a hero after he had uh, left Scientology. I thought that was a big difference and one of the reasons yeah. I like what you had to say. You know, I, and, and I wrote my book from my perspective and, and Marty wrote his from his. And, and I tell you, one one of the, if you really just want to get down to the nuts and bolts, the difference between my account and Marty's account is that I just don't have the ego. You know, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't give a shit about running Scientology. Dave Miscavige, at the end of my Scientology term, as I call it, uh, you know, after Elrond died, I chose to leave because I was up under. I, I understood. I mean, I was with Elrond the, the whole time. His thinking, I had dialed in. I understood uh, better than most, apparently, due to my position, what he was trying to do, what his vision was, what the technology meant, how to apply it, all of that. I, 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 I got that. And at the end, this shit didn't work. I, you know, that's right. I did. I gave it my heart. I gave it my soul. And it just didn't work. Okay. So Elrond's now dead. Miscavige begged me to come and help him lead. And I just wouldn't. I wouldn't even see him. I wouldn't even give him an audience to talk to because I didn't want him to talk me into it because I knew he could. I mean, let me just lay this on the table. This is another thing that that has probably never been spoken by me or anyone else. Of all the people in Scientology, of all the ones that I know and came across with, had very few close friends. Very few, because we're not a, we really weren't allowed to be friends. We were allowed to be associates, and the instant you know you did some of my lines, that was the end of our damn friendship. So. Friendship really wasn't anything allowed in that in that system of things, or it was rare. But I can truly say the only friend that I ever had, true friend in Scientology, that would actually lift me up and help me was Dave Miscavige. Really? He is the only one. I mean, you know, when you have a, a friend and it's a true friend, they include you in their life. And that's what David did to me, and and Render never did that, and 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 Marty never did that, or any of those people. 
He included me in his life. I included him in my life. He's the one that picked my wife for me. You know, we used to go and play racquetball together, go do basketball together. You know, that's what friends do. When when they got free time, they look for one another, they do things together. We would do music together, listen to the album, talk about music, you know, whatever, whatever. It was, you know, work was work, friendship was friendship. That's the relationship I had with Miscavige. So he it broke his heart when I wouldn't help him. And now my heart was broken too, because nothing was there for me to there was no reason for me to stay. And I couldn't say it as succinctly as I'm able to speak on, on it today, but that what was in what was in my heart. There's no reason for me to be here. You know, I, I you know, in the end, it's like you play that radio station. What's in it for me? I'm not going to do shit unless I if something is in it for me. It, it, there has to be a reason, a, a justification for me to be here. So. In that regard, I had done every OT levels, all the training, all the new stuff, everything, whatever, pilots, whatever. And guess what? It, it, it was, in the end, it, it just wasn't, it, it didn't produce what it said it could. It produced something, but not what it said it could. And to that degree, I just couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't keep doing it. It's really interesting that you say that about Miscavige, because um, talking to a few of the others recently, they were reminding me that there was a time uh, around the same period you're talking about when, you know, Miscavige and people like Jaeger and Midhoff and Will here, they go bowling on the weekends, you know, and, uh, and then bowling, basketball. We used to go to the club. You hear me? RTC. There was a place called The Hot. We would go there and get drunk in the fuck on the weekend, dance all night. Wow. And then and, and kill squirrels, you know, kill dissidents during the day. No, we we lived a regular life, I'm telling you. Me, me and Miss Scott, we went to parties, throwing food in the restaurant, you know, showing off, you know, the, our money, our power. I, I'm telling you, it was like, it was a juggernaut of people, and it wasn't just one. And we somehow got along and enjoyed what we were doing. Well, let me ask you then, because you left in 96. And, 92. I'm sorry. Uh, 90, 92. You left in 92. Sorry. And then, um, like you said, the, the McPherson, th- she died in 95, and then it started to become a legal thing in 96, 97. And then um, in 2004, that litigation was finally done with. And that's when he created the whole... And, you know, one by one, all these guys he used to go bowling with or drinking with, he turned on them all. He put them all in this prison, and they've been there ever since, you know, 18 years. So, I mean, do you have any insight into what's driving this guy that he would take all these close friends, the only people he could really trust in the world, and and turn on them like that? Yes, yes, I do. Um, I have. Well, I have an opinion about it. I don't know if I have insight because, you know, I'm not on the scene and I don't know, you know, the the real whys and wherefores of how that could happen. But just as an outsider, I'm looking at those people and those group of people, like how many of them this happened to at the same time. And I'm looking at this diminutive little person doing that, you know. And, and I had a realization about this recently. How the fuck can this little person do this to all of these people that are so much bigger to him and, and they, he does it and all they do is cry and whine and comply? How does that happen? Because that is so far out of my reality. You know, because, you know, well, people say you street, you that, you the other thing. But, but this is what I came to realize about this. And this was just recently because... You know, I, I didn't I couldn't see it as clearly as I see it now. A lot of those people were born into Scientology, so that's all they know. Yeah. That was yeah. not my path in Scientology. I came from the world into Scientology, kind of looking for what it could give me. So I wasn't raised in that shit. I had to learn it and I did, and then I learned it so well that I ended up teaching it to them and working with the founder. And um and then he was gone, and then so was I. So, you know, 
people, it, it, I, I was able to see a distinction between people that were raised in Scientology versus people that go to it off the street. There is a distinction, uh, you know, and I think that probably explains why some little tiny person could do this to all of these bigger people because in the real world, he would be fucking killed, smashed, beat to death. He would never even think of ever doing it again if he survived one attempt. That's what happens in this world that I came into after <laughs> leaving Scientology. No one would put up with that shit, period. Well, that explains... I mean, in today's world, you can't go outside, you can't sit outside in the, and, and have something and sit outside in a restaurant with some people coming up to jack your ass. You know, you think you're going to go out in the world and people going to salute you and you do that shit to them? No, it just won't happen. Well, let me... That that explains why they're not uh, retaliating, but can you hazard a guess as to what's going on in his head that he's... He's basically imprisoned all of the people that used to I think what's right. going on in his head is is a equal level of desperation, you know. When when you keep he, he you know, he's not getting the right reaction from them that he's looking for, so he keeps doing it. Okay, I'll give you a classic example, you know. He's Polish, he's already racist, you know, or raised that way. His crazy ass daddy, whatever. And he had this problem with calling me the N-word. When I first got there, and I, hey, wait a minute, you know, I pulled him to the side. I didn't do it in front of everyone. I said, look, man, we got to talk about this. Because if you do this shit again, I'm going to beat your motherfucking ass so bad. You will be fucking unrecognizable. <laughs> you know, I just like, I, you know, our relationship going to be over right here. If this is if this is how you want to proceed, the part, the Jesse Green part is over. And Dave's part being in extreme fucking danger begins. Wow. And I explained it to him, and he understood. You know, I, I'll give you another classic example. Now he gets all of those people that he's putting a motherfucking hold. They were all piled up against me when he woke me up in the middle of the night to let me know that he was putting me in the RPF. And he just let me escape for five minutes. I came back with all the fucking guns I had. Okay, and I let him know who the fuck was served. So that is the difference between a person that was raised in the world Versus a person that was raising some crazy ass cult and they they can't think outside the box. They think they have to put up with that abuse. They think that's normal. They think that's okay because everyone stands around and watches it. And and that's why the you know the system itself is just extremely perverse because it makes no sense. I don't understand even how they sell Scientology these days. But that those people would do that is more on them than it is on Miscavige. I mean, if one of them actually stood up and said, okay, fuck that, you little bastard, we ain't doing that, it would change the program for them all. You know, he would have some resistance and he would reevaluate. And maybe he would give them some respect. But they don't. They just whine and, and, and cry and whimper. And it, it's just amazing to me. You know, I, I don't know. It I don't is know. amazing. He's. He's uh, maintained this kind of control for, as I pointed well, out. But let's let's put that in the world. Let's put that in the world. We have a similar example that just happened. Here we have this frail old lady, the queen, 95 years, 96 years old. She just died. People are coming out the woodwork, hating on her. Oh, that goddamn bitch. You know, um, what well, we, we have slavery and colonization. And, oh, she did this and she did that and she did this and she did that. Well, you know what? She didn't live long enough to be able to do all of that. She was born into that shit. She carried on her tradition and she lived and she died. You know, that's another thing that, that kind of brought it into perspective to me. People that are brought into something, I mean, that's that's kind of their destiny. They're not going to change. Well, you've said this a few times now about how you weren't uh, born into it. Tell, tell us quickly uh, how you did find Scientology to begin with. I was, you know, I was looking for answers. I had, you know, I, I, I'm not going to talk too much about this part, but I'll just say this. I had an epiphany. I had an experience. I had like a, a, a Bodhi experience uh, uh, about life. And uh, I'll, I'll just say, I, you know, I had something and I thought I was God. I felt like I was God. 
I started acting like I was God. I mean, I started doing shit that, you know, people don't, can't do or, or whatever. And it freaked my family. And, and it was as a result of doing, taking some drugs. I took a, a, a bunch of PCP or whatever, a bunch of something. And it just put me somewhere. And, um, you know, it freaked my whole family out, freaked my friends out. You know, I'm running around telling people I'm God. Um, I, uh, and I had a piece about it. You know, that wasn't God Thor, you know, throwing lightnings or God of the Old Testament about to tear the whole fucking place up. I was kind of like had Jesus peace. And I and um and and so it took me some time to recover from that experience of, of overdosing on those drugs. And in contemplation, or at least I had a long road to contemplation, but I had kind of like reached a state of nirvana. I, it made me feel so good. I was at peace with everyone and everything. I loved everyone and everything. I had the confidence of a God. I, you know, there, I, there was nothing I wanted to do, in it, but I had no malice in my heart. And um, so uh, it took me about, I don't know, a month or so just to come down from that trip. Tony, I would literally sit outside in the freezing cold, like minus 14, I would sit outside on a t in a t-shirt on a ledge and I would just sit there and concentrate and I would make my body sweat while what outside. Was this? Steam, uh, indicator of noise, steam flying off my fucking body and I'm, I'm outside. I mean, I went through something. I had a, 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 a mystical experience, whatever. I had an experience. So, that happened when I was 21. Shortly after that, I got into Scientology because I was searching for answers. I was like, I want to know what happened to me. Right. You know, after right. I, I kind of came back to my regular human mind, you know, I'm the me instead of the I got the me, Jesse. It's like, what, what, you know, what happened to me? What was that experience? How was that? You know, I, I knew I didn't have a body. I knew that, that uh, God was love and, you know, just so many things. And I was outside of my body for uh, 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 some times too. So I was already on the path of searching. Right after that incident happened, I was reading books like the uh, Carlos Castaneda books, that whole fucking fraud. I was also reading uh, about Rosicrucians. And um, I was reading anything I could find about being separated from uh, the spirit being separated from the body. Uh -huh. I was into all of that kind of thing. So, you know, I was ripe when I, <laughs> in, 19, in 1976, walking down the street in San Francisco, and this beautiful redhead woman asked me, you want to know more about yourself? I'm like, yes, I do. I want the whole enchilada. I want to know about me and you. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's that's kind of, so I was, you know, I, I came there for a purpose. I, I had this thing that made me, feel like I was God. Then I ran into this shit that tells me, well, you are a God and we're going to teach you how to God. Hey, it seemed like to be a perfect match. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's how, you know, and, that, and that's why I was loyal to it. At least somebody was trying to teach me how to be what I am. And then how did you end up like the number three guy in the whole organization? Miscavige and other people raised me up because I never had an ego, Tony, as God is my witness. I never wanted to be this or that. I, and I thought that was my mental illness. I have no, I don't give a shit. I'm not trying to be the leader, nothing. I'm happy to just watch, do my part. I don't want, I, you know, but people kept lifting me up. Oh, he, he does it. He, because he does good work, because he actually learns, tries to understand, I just kept getting lifted up, lifted up. El, it was Miscavige that brought me to L. Ron and said, here, here's the guy that, that understands Scientology more than anybody else and can teach us all. Miscavige wow. did that. But did I ask for it? No. That, you know, all them stripes and bars, I never asked for that shit. It was given to me. And and Elron himself, what were your interactions with him? Just a one time, really, you know, well, interactions as far as physically. 
but uh, my interactions with him beginning sometime around in 1982 until his death involved um, helping him create new technology or, or being a pilot auditor for creation of new technology like rollback technology, false purpose rundown, truth rundown, all these kind of things. I was there for the genesis of all of that. <clears throat> and um and and formulating helping him formulate that also concurrently he was writing that 10 volume decology mm -hmm. of crazy science fiction shit and i was an avid science fiction fans and 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 everybody knew it because of stephen king i used to scare people on the base with my stephen king shit so some, you know, Von Young was my friend and he was editing Elrond's book. Anyway, I ended up getting a manuscript. Every time one was finished and edited, it would give to me, give my opinion. So I'm right there with Elrond. And then we're, I'm also through dispatching different things with Incom. That's when we were, when Scientology was forming its uh, internal computer network system. And I was uh, over that as well, uh, not knowing shit about computers, but still people put me in these positions because they thought I'd do a good job because I guess I did a good job with everything else I tried to do. And um, so, you know, it's the one time and I kept and, and you know, these dispatches and things Elrond and he asked me to do and I, I seemed to do them perfectly and and whatever. And then one day when he was was happy with Scientology leadership, which was maybe maybe about a year and a half before he started having those severe medical problems that eventually led to his death. He wanted to see who his management team was. He wanted to see like where international management was. He wanted to see the golden air production crew, because this is where he was going to come. He wanted to see the people where he was going to come. So everybody had to take a picture. Ted Horner uh, was the, uh, the person that was over photographing all of the people at the gold base at the time. And of course, you know, I'm the black sheep in the damn family, you know, and and it, it doesn't didn't actually go along with Elrond's thinking or his idea that a black person could achieve any type of level of intelligence, uh, given, you know, how he spoke about them before. And um, he had never really had a visual of me. So for me to be at the top of the game on the tech and correction, I mean, I'm even, as you say, parallel with Miscavige, at least to the point where I'm his counselor. He's not my damn counselor. I'm the person applying technology to him. Right. And 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 so he asked everyone to have a picture and then they did. We, we all took a nice headshot and then the pictures were sent to him. And about a week later, you know, next thing you know, I am summoned to go down to... Um, where they eat, where they used to eat the food at, um, it's called Massacre Canyon Inn, out there at Golden Era Productions. They had planters in the parking lot. Anyway, long story short, I was asked to stand on the planter and do not look at the people in the car, but someone wants to see you. I knew who the fuck it was. Oh, wow. Here he comes in the Cadillac, Pat Broker driving, driving, circling, circling me like I'm a damn slave on the slave box. But, you know, I couldn't help it. I had to look. I had to look. <laughs> and I saw him, and he was looking at me, and he was just beaming. His little, his little black eyes just shining. His little messed up teeth looked like fucking Santa Claus, wild, crazy hair. And he just had this big shit-eating grin on his face. And uh, then the, when, I, when he saw me glance at him, the car left. I was told that I would get in so much trouble if I looked at that car, and they would know. Not a fucking word. Next thing you know, I got presents and, and you know, he's so happy. He, he's so happy with the team. He's so happy to see me as part of the team. You know, that that was a good time. That was when it was a good time. We were preparing for him to come. But then he his health failed. And he died. And then were you at the Palladium that night? No, I wasn't at the Palladium because... When uh, when it was decided to announce Elrond's death, we wanted to uh, announce it as best we could to the world at the same time, in the same moment. 
So, me and Mark Yeager, I believe it was. Me and Mark Yeager, or me and Guillaume, I can't remember. No, it was me and Mark Yeager. Yeah, me and Mark Yeager went to Italy and did the event and announced his death together. Oh, I see. Executives went everywhere, and and Pat Broker and Miscavige did it at the Palladium. We we planned this event that was very much choreographed. So, so no, I was not at the Palladium when he died. I was in Italy. I guess you left just before tax exempt status. No, I was there. Because that was not. I think I was there. Huh. That was they got it in 93? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, then, no. I guess I just missed it. But, you know, in my heart, I celebrated with them. You know, it was crazy. But uh, because it was a true victory. I mean, irregardless of, of what Scientology is or whatever, whatever, you, you had a small group of people who, over time, which in reality I was a part of, that fought the system and won. You know, the government has never been a friend of the black man for one fucking thing. So I don't have a lot of love for government. And to be associated with something that could overcome the will of the government was a very powerful thing. It still is. I see. I see. And then let me ask you, because um, I know some some of our readers, have, some of the readers know that I've talked about this in the past. You've had some real health challenges, but I, the last time we talked, you sound like you're doing great. Man, look, you know, I had to unlearn so much, you know, from Scientology, you know, after getting out. But, and you know, and I had to be honest with myself about a lot of things. You know, I had to be honest with myself about the good and the bad. And reconcile these things and, and move on. And uh, and when I, uh, you know, reconciled or began to clearly reconcile my, my Scientology experience, it only brought to view the beginning of a reconciliation that I needed to do in my life. Because, you know, you, you I, I've, I've been known to rag on my... Uh, Scientology brothers and sisters that I was in there with about how when they do get out, they run to their whiteness and they run and they be white, you know, and, 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 they, and they're accepted in that community of people being white and, um, and they're able to, to do well and, and prosper in some cases or whatever. They're uh, able to find sucker, able to find comfort, and a place in that system of things. And I, you know, I hated them for that because I'm not white and they, you know, I can't do that. But what did it do? It blamed, well, what, what the hell are you? Well, you're black and you've always been black. And, you know, and, and you are in this organization, which is basically really for white supremacy. And uh, you, you, are, you were at, not only there, you were at the top of it. So, at some point, I had to not only remember, but I had to accept and embrace myself, my blackness, to put all of this shit in perspective anyway. You know, I had to really learn myself. I had to come back to myself, or at least what the world expects of me. I had to view myself in the mirror in order to to be a whole person, to be, to, uh, you know, reconcile life and move on, you know, without regret. And it sounds like you're doing really well now. Well, I am. Health-wise, I'm doing really well because I live a conscious life. I've, um, I no longer uh, do the red meat. You know, and plus I'm older. You know, so, you know, when you're older and, you know, shit starts breaking down, you're automatically going to be more conscious of your, of your health if you want to live a quality of life. So for that reason, I I, um, I eat healthy. I'm very conscious about what I eat. I, I eat very little red meat, and uh, I'm conscious of exercise. I'm conscious of, of you know, uh, eating enough vegetables and all of this stuff, and and uh, meditating, you know, cleaning my thoughts, 
you know, being away from negativity, just um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm older now, so I can't handle that hard, harsh energy of like fighting and all that shit. I'm just trying to cruise on out of here in peace. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's that's kind of like where I'm at right now. Yes, but some of us are going to remember you, though, Jesse, for those battling days because you were quite a figure I mean, you went over to Germany and gave speeches about Scientology, right? Uh, in and out, yes. While I was there and out, yes. I, I, You know, I helped build what Scientology is today. All of these, you know, I, I was there during the formation of hiring, of, 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 again, you know, when they started coming after Elrod and they had to break up the Church of Scientology, uh, California, which was where all the money was put and all the power was when they had to break that stuff up into different corporations, such as uh, author services, so that L. Ron could get paid his uh, royalties from the book. Right. And then figuring all of that out. Then the trademarks and copyrights uh, to RTC, so that those weren't endangered by all of these lawsuits. And then, you know, Trace Santali and that, no, and then all these other ones had to be separately incorporated. I was there for all of that shit. So I'm a principal. Of Scientology, and, you know, it, it, it never, uh, you know, ceases to amaze me the arrogance of some of these new people in Scientology, or some of the people in Scientology who were there and didn't know what the fuck was going on. They want to challenge me, or, or, or you know, think they know something that's uh, that's going on that I don't. But, you know, I just it, it, the arrogance of Scientology itself is enough to keep me away. I don't give a damn which side you're on. Just the arrogance of it all is enough to make me not participate in it so much anymore. I just don't have the patience or the will, nor the time. Well, I mean, arrogance is kind of built into Scientology, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, it, you wonder, especially, you know, the people that were in Scientology, you, you would think, given what's going on in the world today and then how they are now, they learn nothing. They learned nothing. You look at, um, I mean, Scientology was not a perfect system, but some things they did get right, especially when it came to um, the uh, uh, projection, how, you know, uh, uh, this concept that's going on now these days about how a person that has done something, you know that they're the person that did it because they projected onto someone else. Mm -hmm. Well, in Scientology, we learned that as such a basic, you know, the but they call it the over death speak uh, loudly in accusation. And, you know, in, in uh, the world terms, they call it the person projecting. But it's the exact same principle. The asshole that's running around calling everybody else a criminal is the damn criminal, plain and simple. Look at him first. Yeah. The person who's telling yeah. you he didn't do shit is the first person you suspect. That's what we learned, and we investigate, and we find. I mean, we beat the fucking government, so <laughs> our, our, our ways and technique couldn't be that bad. They may have been uncomfortable, but they were very effective because they were correct and right. Well, we're certainly uh, going into a pretty interesting time now uh, with David Miscavige and Scientology litigation, and it's great to check in with somebody that has such a long history in it and understands how it's going. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for for putting some of this stuff in perspective for me today. Well, you know, I, I, I thank you for the opportunity, Tony. And, and as you know, you and I have been been on this Ferris wheel for a while now. And and I'm always willing to uh, help you and do what I can to 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 bring understanding to this subject. Well, sure. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. All right. Thank you, Tony. Again, again.